Micah 2 verse 1, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it. So what they've been thinking about all night long. Because it's in the power of the hand to do it. So because I can. And they covet fields and they take them by violence and houses and take them away so that they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which you shall not remove your necks. Neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. Verse 4. In that day shall one take up a parable against you. So he's, going to, he's got something to say about what's going on. Lament with a doleful lamentation about what a blessing they had been and yet now cursed. We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none to cast a cord by lot, so you have no claim to property in the congregation of the Lord. Of course, it's a parable of sorts describing the outcome of a rebellious people who now have no heritage with the Lord. Well, this house is, of course, his Israel. So, you know, you can take, we're not replacing Israel. Israel is still who they are, the people of God. The family that is talked about here is a particular rebellious generation of Israelites. Their heritage that is talked about is the promised land. The prophet Micah, so this minor prophet as we call him, had been given a message of judgment for their unwillingness to obey, listen and obey the voice of the Lord. They had everything at their disposal from the Lord. They had, they had everything of blessing beyond all other nations and yet they would not obey. Let's take it by application. Do you have any doubt that the time in which we live is evil? Is there any doubt in your mind? No doubt. Is it possible that God may soon bring judgment upon our generation? Absolutely. And we would love to blame everyone else, and we have enough blame to go around, but it seems He brings it back to his own people. And remember, if judgment begins, where does it first begin? In the house of the Lord. Well, we have been the witness of horrific scenes in our schools. We've watched as young adults riot in our streets. We've sadly witnessed the hypocrisy of our leaders, all of which most of us never before could have imagined but now it seems commonplace. I mean, just talking about a school shooting, we now say another school shooting. Barna Research Group, it's a, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of Barna, but they, they do research in sort of religious realms. And Barna Research Group suggested there are four contributing behaviors that have led to our decline. He says Bible reading is down 8%. Now that may not sound like... Well, it's just 8%, not, not too bad, but that means only 37% of people who call themselves Christians spend any time reading their Bible outside of church. 37%. Church attendance, down 7%. Now, it says 7%, but now post-COVID, I think it's down, some say 20% or more. 
it's down. But 42% of people, again, in our nation, attend church of any kind on a Sunday morning. Volunteering at church, down 7%. 20% of the people, you know the old uh, Paredes principle, you know that, that 80-20 thing? You ever do any business and you hear that, that 80-20? And it's that, it's always seems to be that kind of, that way. 80, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, right? You know that? And the one I like is, is uh, you know, the 20% of the people do 80% of the complaining. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know how that, you know how that, that back and forth works. But adult Sunday school, so for Bob and, and Al and for others who have taught from time to time, it says it's down 4%. doesn't sound like it. Well, that's not tragic. But that means only 19%, less than 20% of people who, in the first place, attend church, bother to go to a Bible study class. Micah chapter 2 identifies for us three things that have infiltrated our Christian life and have thereby significantly impacted the way we worship God. Again, it's about Israel, but it's a parable. And so we can take this that is true about them and say, I wonder if some of these things aren't true about us. Number one, verse one, our hands are rooted in evil. Woe to them that devise iniquity, work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it's in the power of their hand to do it, because I can. So what do we see they are at work doing? Iniquity and evil. Notice the word Devise. They devise this. It's not a sudden impulse of an unforeseen circumstance. Like you would say, something happened and we just reacted and maybe it was wrong. No, this is, this is premeditated. This is something that they are scheming and imagining in their hearts. And notice the phrase, it's in the power of their hand. It suggests a godlike might, sort of an overconfident attitude. It's the philosophy of the world that says might makes right. And most people don't think much about what they're doing beyond because I can. I can afford it. I can do it. It's in the power of my hand. It's okay. It must be okay if I can do it. But we have a generation that has moved away from I remember growing up and asking the question, why should I do this? Like, give me a reason, right? So why should I do this? But now it's a question of why can't I do that? Now that's subtle, but listen to it again. We grow up in a generation that says, why, why should I do this? And so I want rationale for why I go to church, why I give my money, why I tithe, why I pray. And so it's, it's a good thought, right? So we're going to have some, some rational thought given to why we do what we do as Christians. But now the question is no longer that. Now the question is, why can't I do that? And so preachers and parents were put in the position of negative, right? You can't do that. You can't. We shouldn't, you know. And we've lost even the sense of what we ought to be doing. Well, personal happiness always trumps personal holiness. Because I can. Don't I have a right to be happy? Right? And then I sound all negative because I start talking about other things. Jeremiah said that this kind of thinking only tends to strengthen the hands of evildoers. Jeremiah 23 so that there comes a point at which they will never return from their wickedness. So we get to the place where we have gone so far afield in our imaginations of what we can do, we can no longer even do the things we know that we ought to do. 
Most modern ministries do more to help people feel better right where they are. And I know there's, you know, oh, we just, I get that. But then as a result, people tend to stay right where they are, doing what they've always done rather than coming to the cross in repentance of sin. When hands become rooted in evil, there's little distinction between church and the world and our unwillingness to speak out about the evil of our day says more about the condition of our hearts than it does about the world. As a result, we end up with what he describes here as iniquity. Vain effort is really what he's talking about. It's what Paul called vain deceit in Colossians 2. And the best effort of man apart from God will only ever be vanity. Emptiness, temporary, self-serving. Isaiah called the works of man vanity, which come to nothing. He described man's religion as wind and confusion, Isaiah 41. And where do we think we end up with all these plans? He says, in evil, evil work, evil plans. And where do they accomplish this? Verse 1 still. It says, on their bed. Now, on their bed has more to do with when than where. I mean, you can imagine a guy propped up on pillows, you know, in his bed. You can imagine a guy in the leisure of his recliner. I mean, that's okay. You can kind of get the image of what he's talking about, but it's more about when. When is this? It's in the cover of dark. It's in the night. It's when they have nothing else to do. And they become either busybodies or their imaginations of their hearts start to go wild. Little else to occupy their mind or hands. Maybe your mama said the same thing. My mom said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. You ever hear that? Idle hands are the devil workshop. Now, I, I don't want to get off on too much this morning, but, you know, we have a, a nice sense of, of low sort of unemployment, but that's false because 60, only about 60%, that means 40% of able-bodied Americans, highest ever, for, well, except for, you know, wars and Depressions, 40% of able-bodied people in our nation today are choosing not to work. Millions of jobs out there, 40% of idle hands are the devil's workshop. And they think about it when they have nothing else to do. That's what this verse is describing. Upon their bed is a reference to the good times. And all of us know the tendency of good times is to conclude with the wealthy farmer, I have a lot of stuff. I'm doing pretty well. I'll take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And what did Jesus say to him? Well, in the parable, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, as you went like that. And then who shall all these things belong to that you've saved up, that you thought you had saved up for yourself. It's foolishness. Ever wonder what has happened to our society? We've lost our way somewhere in the gray area between having just enough and having just a little bit more. 
The spiritual condition of our homes has been mortgaged for the temporary happiness of life, and we are not rich toward God. By the way, just throw in another little factoid. Uh, do you know that our, our national debt, it, it holds a quarter of a million dollars on every head in this, well, household in this room. A quarter of a million dollars that you're liable for in our national debt. You remember what is the root of all evil? The love of money, right? Mike is talking just about that. The pursuit of things. It is the rare person. It is the rare politician. It is the rare parent who is not corrupted by having a little bit more. Read any headline of any act of violence or evil in our world, in any part of the world today. And at the bottom of that barrel of evil, you will find rooted in the love of money. Think about all the things that are frustrating you right now. If you could just pull the money out from under it, it'd just go away. It would just go away. There'd be no money for it. Well, this leads us to consider verse 2 then, the covetousness our heritage, what we've come to enjoy, is ruined by this root of evil, verse 2. And they covet fields, and they take them by violence, and houses, and take them away so that they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Isaiah said, Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there's no place that they can be all alone in the earth. Their covetousness led to violence. Their violence led to oppression. I like the way the New Living Translation describes these three words. Fraud, cheat, and steal. Now that, that's pretty blunt. Now however you describe it, it is the root of all evil that undermines the heritage we have from the Lord. The sad result is that even good men and women are no longer able to do what they know is right to do because it's been undermined in every other way. Be careful about putting a little more under the Christmas tree this season. Just be careful. I'm not saying don't do it. Just be careful about putting a little more under the Christmas tree this season until paying for it becomes sort of a year-long burden of yours. It is the deceptive rationale of Politicians that promise everything and they are stealing from your future inheritance. And so we happily pursue the good life as long as it doesn't bother me. And I get a little more out of it. And they throw a little bit to everybody, hoping to keep everyone quiet until it is achieved. This good life that we talk about is achieved somewhere along middle life, you know. By the time our kids get married... By the way, that takes a second mortgage to pay for that nowadays, doesn't it? Pray for you, Ryan, with those two girls. <laughs> and then we end up with partners whose kids are now married and gone, and they don't even know one another because they've spent so much time providing for so much things in this world that they never got time to know each other. And by the way, that's when the highest divorce rate happens. It's, it's sad. You see, folks have been married for years, and the kids are grown, they had good homes, and the, now it ends up in divorce because they simply don't 
know each other. And we see our kids and we say, why can't they be happy with what they have? And I say to that, because we've taught them well. Well, it is then that parents sit alone in a house so hard that, they're, that they've worked for so hard to attain all these things in life, and they lose everything. Is it any wonder that more homes break up at this age? This word heritage in verse 2, a man and his heritage, it suggests an inheritance. It is something that will provide lasting impact through generations. It refers to enduring qualities. It's something that's handed on to the next generation. What are we handing to the next generation? What attitudes about stuff? What attitudes about life? What thoughts about the Lord? Something that provides lasting generations. Name for me one thing that will be found under your Christmas tree this year that will outlast the time you've spent or will spend paying for it. Name for me one thing that you're going to put under the Christmas tree this year that will outlast the time you spent paying for it or the time you're going to spend paying for it. It's the fun times you have together, buying, like buying Nerf guns and shooting it out in the house. I won't say who did that, but the guy that just laughed, yeah, that was him. I mean, you know, spend some money on some fun and, and, and interaction, things that will bring families together, things that will create uh, you know, time that is spent together that will give you memories that will outlast, well, you, it'll outlast the stuff of life if we do not perpetuate the truth of this book. Judges tells us, in Bob's study of Judges, that there will soon arise a generation that does not know what the Lord has done for His people. And as a result of that, there will soon arise another generation that will not obey the Lord. Won't listen to Him, won't obey, and, and everything the old preacher has to say will sound foreign. What I say to you now, it kind of has a ring of truth to it. But there is coming a generation soon enough that when I speak to them in this way, it won't even make sense to them. I'm totally out of touch. I simply do not understand and they will just turn me off in the days to come. Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he can't get away from it. It'll, it'll come back to him. If we do not perpetuate the truth of this book, we will reap what we have sown. Well, this sentence is passed upon the choices of Israel by application upon our choices. Verse 3, there is a haughty spirit that you see there. It's rebuked as the consequence of evil. So he says, the Lord, behold, against this family. So this particularly uh, uh, rebellious group among all the Israelites, there is a particular rebellious generation. Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which they shall not remove their necks, neither shall they, ye, us, in application, go haughtily, for the time is evil." Well, this judgment is a sentence we have brought upon ourselves. We have no one else to blame. We can't pass the buck. It stops here. It will not be a poor reflection upon the world. It does cast, however, a long shadow of doubt upon the validity of the church because of how we have behaved. The world has not let us down. The politician is not to blame. But the faltering faith of our fathers 
is letting down society. We can no longer numb the pain with the intoxication of our own indulgence or ignore the consequence of our own apathy because, well, it never doesn't bother me. I know, I know it's different. It's, it's, I understand it. The sentence of judgment is passed first upon the family of God. Then it's reflect, reflected in our church and by long our society. This evil time, verse 3, the end of verse 3 in which we live, suggests the disposition of our heart. It's first used to describe the condemnation. So this, this evil of our heart is first used to describe the condemnation that happened in the days of Noah. So go all the way back to the days of Noah, right? And what did it say about their society? God saw, Genesis 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of their thoughts and heart, and here's the word, was only ever evil. That's the concept of their evil imaginations. Of course, the only reason the Lord hasn't done the same thing to us is because of that promise in the sky, right? That rainbow and the promise that came at the end of the flood. Men presume that their passions of life will satisfy only to discover that this milestone they have accomplished of life becomes more like a millstone that's hung about their neck and it's dragging them down and their family with them. This haughty or proud spirit is an attitude that says, it won't happen to me, preacher. I understand what you're saying. I've seen it in my neighbor. I've seen it in my other family members. But I get it. And it won't happen to me. Pride says I can handle it. Pride says it's different in my circumstance. But now you rejoice in your boastings, James 4. And all such rejoicing is evil. It's not that your intentions are evil. Like nobody sets out to ruin their life, at least not right off the bat. Nobody sets off to end up in ruin, bankruptcy, and whatever else you know describes ruin for you. Nobody sets out to say, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. Nobody sets out that direction. But it becomes the end of the person who does not consider God in the equation of their life, because I can. What's God got to do with it? And I'm reminded of what it is that comes just before failure. You know this verse in Proverbs chapter 16. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So when you got, start to think to yourself, you know what, it's different for me, I understand it, I get it, and you start to doubt, you know, that it's really as bad as the old preacher says, beware, beware. Failure may not be far behind. Look down there in verse 10, Micah 2 down in verse 10, I think I read it in, earlier. He says, arise and depart. This is from your promised land. Arise and depart from the thing you thought was going to Provide all of your needs. The thing that you put all your hope in, arise, part, leave it behind. Because this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it'll destroy you even with a sore destruction. 
Never for a moment should you let down your guard and think that this world is your resting place because it will destroy you. Satan need only have you doubt his evil intention to gain the upper hand upon your, yourself, your family, because it's often in the least things that leaves the lasting impression. And what this world holds out as the thing you need to be happy will end up costing you far more than you bargained for in the beginning. For example, and I use this because I don't think it applies to anybody here, but for example, I, I don't mean to disappoint anybody listening, but your child is likely not going to be a major league baseball player. They're not going to grow up and be a, be a, a full-time baseball pitcher that earns millions of dollars and pays off your mortgage. I'm sorry to disappoint you. However, how many families do we see today going to the ball field on Sunday mornings instead of to church? And, and again, I'm not saying don't have fun. I'm not saying, you know, don't enjoy the things that you're good at in life. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm telling you, you're leaving a lasting impression on a generation that is yet to come. And when they grow up and have no sense of need for church or the things of the Lord, maybe it was spent all those Sunday mornings on the ball field. I don't know. I don't mean to take away all your fun. I don't mean to ruin your Christmas season. But do remember, or I'm sure you remember, that after Christmas letdown feeling you had last year, maybe the year before that, in fact, maybe most Christmases, and all the presents are open and everything is done, and it's like, ah, and that sort of letdown feeling that you get sometimes. Well, this year you think, you know what, it's going to be different this year. I got a handle on it. It's going to be different this year. But it won't. I just don't want you to end life with that kind of regret. Regret is the stuff of age. And the more regrets you have, the older you feel. I just don't want you to end up in life with regret. Worse yet, to enter eternity without those more important things that you can take with you. Your children, your family, the life you've spent in service for the Lord, those other people that you've introduced to the Lord, people you've prayed for, time you've spent with. It may sound like a worn out phrase, but my friend, Jesus is the reason for the season. He really is. And the pageantry, I saw one this morning, just blew me away from a, from a church, not local. But I was like, they, they, have, they would have to sell tickets to it. It, it was just that fantastic. I know I sound like a, a, a what a negative Nancy today. I, I understand that. But I don't think the pageantry of Christmas that we see today is anything like when Jesus first came. Do you think? So what is the lasting impression we are giving people of Jesus? You may know the poem, In the Bleak Midwinter, Season, do you know that poem? Christina Rosetti. What can I, it ends with this, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. As you plan your Christmas season, remember more stuff 
is not going to bring more happiness. It may only distract you from the simple message, Jesus loves you. Jesus came for you. Only Jesus can save. A simple, simple message. Without all the pageantry, and all the expense, and all the time, and all the frustration that you put into it, don't lose the reason for the season. Our Lord Jesus Christ.